And there's moments, right, that redefine our monotony of our lives. And a few weeks ago, I started our series on wonder. Let's see if I can continue. Um, and I talked about how your life starts in a moment, and it's heading towards a moment where you're going to end. And it seems like this endless in-between is just eating and sleeping. And then there's these moments, right? And we talked about them like falling in love or discovering like the thing you were made to do or watching a meteor shower at night. And these moments are redefining our lives and our destiny. And I call those wonder. Right? Two weeks ago, anybody remember that? Been a lot of sleep since then, a lot of craziness. But there's something I didn't talk about. There's other moments that redefine our life as well that aren't quite as nice as this. Right? We fall in love, and that's a great moment, but then there's another moment that breaks us out of a lot of monotony, our hearts break. Or, you know, we have this great idea, but our dream fails. Or we're like, man, this moment's going to be so great and everything falls apart. Did anybody have any plans for 2020? And you're like, this is going to be so amazing. And then it fell apart and it was absolutely so terrible. And so if these are moments of wonder, I call these moments of wondering, see if I can write sideways, I can. When we wonder why. Like, why in the world did that happen? Why did it have to happen like that? Why did that terrible thing have to happen? Like, why couldn't I just go on with my life without, uh, with, with avoiding that instead of having to go through that? If there are the moments that of wonder that are mysterious and meaningful, these moments at the bottom are when the bottom drops out and we feel disconnected from everything and everything that truly matters. Um, all of us, at some point, have wondered why. Why did we have to go through that excruciating pain? Why did we have to have our heart broken? Why did our abilities fail? Why did our dreams go unfulfilled? And these moments mark us. They make us wonder why. Sometimes for the rest of our lives. Now, today, that's what I'm talking about. Now, it would be absurd to think that in 25 minutes, I'm going to do justice to the problem of suffering. Uh, this subject has been a constant source of conversation for philosophy and religion for thousands of years. Um, and so there's no way I'm going to cover it. But I'm going to try to give us a quick grasp on these moments where we wonder why and how they redirect our lives and what it tells us about God. Here's a quick overview of some of the theories for why we go through pain and loss. If you just went around the world and took a survey, here's what some people would say. There is no God. Everything's a cosmic accident. Sometimes you get beat up when there's an accident. Like, there's a lot of people who think this. Just everything's an accident. Everything tends towards disorder, so it makes sense that sometimes you're going to be run over, thrown down, beat up. Now, that argument makes a lot of sense for the problem of suffering. It really does. It's a good argument for why there's pain and suffering. There's no God. You're just have to go through this because everything's random. But the theory can explain pain, but it can't explain joy. It can explain the moments when we wonder why, but it can't explain the moments when we wonder. It explains why we have bad days, but it can't explain all the good days. And all the tendency in our life towards beauty and goodness, there's a lot of things that are really good in your life. And this theory can't explain those at all. It's just like, well, you should be having bad days all the time and everything's random, but you're actually having a lot of good days. The second theory that people say is God is really far away and doesn't get involved with the minor details of our existence. They say if there's some type of divine being, he's really far away or he's really disinterested in what's going on in our lives. The third theory about why we go through painful things is God causes bad, bad, painful things in your life to make you good. I know a lot of Christians who believe this theory. They're 
like, yes, God brings cancer, he brings suffering, he does these things to you because somehow that's going to make you good. Um, verse 4, or not verse 4, number 4, God's just smarter than us. Some people think that. So what feels bad to us is actually good from a cosmic level. Like, if you were on God's level, you'd be like, oh, that's good. Like, it just seems bad to us because we're there. Um, I don't think that's a satisfying answer. This last one is where I fall. The kingdom that we're in today is outside of God's role and reign. If Jesus was ruling and reigning on this earth, these things, these painful, suffering, evil things that we go through, wouldn't happen. But God won't override human free will, even if it prevents pain for them or for others. This is the theory that I ascribe to. This is the framework that I work out of my suffering and my pain. But pain is a universal problem in our world, and any religion or philosophy, any worldview has to try to make sense of our, uh, that tries to make sense of our reality has to deal with it. Now, pain has a two-pronged effect on a person. Pain is not just what you feel. There is a biological element and a perception of the pain in the brain itself. According to Dr. Norris Cope, the head of the pain medicine program at the University of Pittsburgh, pain is both a biochemical and a neurological transmission of an unpleasant sensation and an emotional experience. In other words, when you go through pain or suffering, it uniquely impacts us and affects who we become and how we see the world because it involves our bodies and our brains. Let me go back out here to my pad. I should have set this up better or lost more weight so that I can slide in the music stand Here's the brain. Or at least what's assembly, best assembly of the brain. So up here on the front, this is your prefrontal cortex. And inside, back here near the brainstem, is your amygdala. Um, now both these have to work together when you have a painful memory. If you're going to eliminate a painful memory, you're like, we forget things all the time, right? We talked about that two weeks ago. Like, you're constantly forgetting things. Your brain's constantly deleting things. How come painful memories don't get deleted? Mm. Have you ever thought about that? You're like, when I'm a kid, I can barely remember anything, but I remember that time that I wet my pants in a Target and everyone laughed at me. That is, like, vivid. That's, like, crystal clear. I remember every detail of that day. I remember the humiliation in the bathroom as my dad is, like, washing my pants out in the sink and holding them up to a blow dryer. And people are walking in the bathroom laughing at me, and they laughed at me the whole way to the bathroom. But I was playing Sonic the Hedgehog on Sega, and I just didn't want, I didn't want to leave, you know? I wanted to stay there in the electronics department. Why does that memory stay with me so much, but I can't remember the good memory? I can't remember the moments of wonder. What is it about us? Well, scientists tell us that why it's harder to erase the painful memories from our lives is because the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex has to work together in perfect harmony. They have to essentially do a sophisticated dance together in order to delete a painful memory. Deleting a regular memory, easy. Deleting a painful memory, your brain has to do this sophisticated dance in order to get rid of it. And one misstep, and that painful memory stays with you. Andrew Holmes at the National Institute of Health says if the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex aren't working together perfectly in order to delete a painful memory, it'll stay forever. In other words, a lot of complex areas of our brain have to be working together in order to overcome a painful memory, and that's why we have therapists, and that's why we pay them a lot of money, because this is not something that your brain does easily or naturally. It's really hard to overcome a painful memory. 
to move it out of this like really intense uh, space in our brain. Many people find that bad experiences stand out in their memory more than good ones. We often forget our moments of wonder, but we dwell on moments when we wonder why. And many times, years later, at the end of your lifetime, you look back and you're like, why did I go through that? And you're still thinking about that moment, even though so much else has changed. Bad memories often intrude on our consciousness at the worst possible moment. Have you ever had that? You're just about to do something really good and then you remember a really bad memory and it like ruins the moment. There's some times where, uh, right before I get up to speak here, I remember the time I shattered the glass communion table at a church I was speaking at. So I had my drink up here, they had this huge wooden podium. It was really like imposing, you know. And I was up there and they were wiggling on some wires down below to hook something up. And I pushed my glass off. It shattered the glass communion table. Um, they actually asked me back this weekend. It's hard to believe that. It was pretty familiar. But sometimes when I get up here, I think about that. Like right before I come up, I have that memory. And it's like sets the whole tone for my method. I'm like, I'm going to go something. I'm going like, to trip over something. I'm going to do something wrong. Bad memories intrude on our consciousness. Now, researchers have shown that bad memories are more vivid than good memories possibly due to the interaction between the emotion parts of our brain and the memory parts of our brain, which both light up at the same time with a bad memory. Neuroimaging has shown that the process of encoding and retrieving bad memories involves the parts of the brain that process emotions. But not all memories do this. So when you have a bad memory, two parts of your brain are lighting up. Like more of your brain is activated when you have a bad memory than a good memory. Doesn't seem fair. It seems the stronger the emotions associated with the memory, the more detail we can recall the memory. Um, that's why I can't get that disturbing torture scene from Casino Royale out of my mind all these years later. I still think about that movie, but that torture scene is just so graphic and intense, I just can't get rid of it. But that's also why you can't seem to get over your devastating loss or betrayal, the time your friend stabbed you in the your back, the time your heart was broken, the time you lost somebody, why you just can't move on. People are like, it's been years, it's been months, it's been decades, why can't you get over it? You're like, hey, I just can't move past it. Now, sometimes Christians say really stupid things to people experiencing pain or processing pain. Um, sometimes I've heard these things. Sometimes I've said these things. It's really easy to have a simple theology about pain when you're not experiencing and many times we say really simple, trite answers to people who are experiencing pain because we're not currently experiencing pain. And I've heard lots of well-meaning people say unintentionally hurtful things like this. Well, God's done something better for you. Really? I was married to somebody for 50 years and they died and God's done somebody better for me? Like, that makes no sense, right? If your spouse for 50 years dies, God doesn't have a better one out there for you. Like, well, you had to live with him for 50 years, but now I've got somebody better for you. No. Sometimes people say, well, God had to hurt you to use you. I've heard pastors say this. I actually had another minister say this to me. God causes you pain so that you can help other people who are hurting. The only problem is this. When we describe God like a cosmic abuser, it gives rise to spiritual leaders who abuse. They're like, if God abused me so that I could do good, I'll abuse others so that they can do good. That's not, what, that's not how we should look at God. Sometimes I've heard people say this, because of your sin. 
That's why you're going to be painful, suffering, because of your sin. God's not carrying around a club marked pain and suffering and grief to hit you with every time you sin. Sin robs your life of joy. God doesn't rob your life of joy when you sin. Sin is like sucking on sand when you really want to quench your thirst. But God's not vindictive. He's redemptive. Um, sometimes I'll hear this. Someday you'll see what this all was for. Well, you know what? There's been some painful things in my life. And it's been 15, 20, 25, 30 years. And I don't know what those painful things were for. And I imagine that for some of you, at the end of your life, 70, 80, 90 years old, you look back and you say, I understand what some of that pain was for. But some of that, I just have no idea. I have no idea why I had to go through that. That didn't do anything good that I can tell except destroy and hurt. Um, and then sometimes I heard people say this, trust his timing. It's painful right now, but you just got to trust his timing. The only problem with that is in Daniel 10, 13, Daniel prays to God, waits for a response from God, and none comes. And ultimately, an angel comes and says, hey, as soon as you pray, God sent you with a response. But I had to fight off all these forces of darkness before I could get here. So the response was delayed. That passage in Daniel 10, 13 is really interesting. It would appear that sometimes the timing of God is thrown off by dark spiritual forces at work in our world. That angel said, God sent me at once to answer your request, but I had to go through all these battles and fights to get to you. And so the response was delayed. So Alex, you might be asking, tell me, why did I go through that? If we're not going to use one of these cheap answers, why did I go through what I went through? Why did I have to go through the crap that I went through? Why did I have to suffer and be betrayed and abused? And why did I have to go through that? Why do I have to not only have gone through it, but I have to live with the memory of it, which still haunts me and affects me to the day? Why do I have to be the person I am today because of that suffering? Like, I'm not the same person because of what I suffered and what I lost. Why? Why? I don't know. Like, I would love to stand up here and give you some great answer. Some eloquent answer and say, here's all your pain and suffering, and here's why you went through it, and here's the perfect answer. And I would be lying. I don't know why. I wish I could give you a more satisfying answer, but that's where I'm currently at. And I'm learning, I'm trying to become okay with the mystery of not having all the answers. I really don't love that. I'm the guy who loves to research things and read about them until I know everything about them and I have all the answers. And there's some moments of your life when you're going to wonder why and you're not going to have an answer. And there's going to be no answer. No one can give you an answer that will make the pain better. I would rather be okay with not knowing than listening to a made-up answer that's a bad. Why did Darby and I have to go through losing a baby? Why do we have to go through longing to be parents and constantly running into obstacles? I don't know. I would love to have some profound spiritual answer to that, but I don't have it. What I have found is that a grown-up faith, a faith that isn't filled with toned-down moralistic stories, sometimes doesn't have clean, simple answers. Sometimes we're left to wonder. And sometimes we're left to wonder why. One of my favorite movies of all time is Christopher Nolan's 2010 film, Inception. In the film, extractors infiltrate, infiltrate people's dreams in order to steal their secrets. Because of the tendencies of extractors to confuse the dream world and reality, they have tokens that remind them of what's real. Uh, Cobb, the main protagonist, he carries a metal top. 
And when he spins it in the dream world, it spins forever. It never stops spinning. But when he spins it in reality, it spins for a little bit and then it falls down like Tom's do. Um, so all throughout this film, we see him losing touch with what's real. And he's constantly spinning this top. He's like, okay, I'm in the real world. And then in the dream, he's like, okay, I'm in the dream because it keeps spinning. Um, so at the end of the film, it shows Cobb finally reuniting with his family. It's this beautiful, cathartic moment. But the audience is left unsure if he's dreaming or if it's the real world. And so the last shot of the film is him taking this top and spinning it on the table. And you see it spinning and spinning and spinning and the camera fades to black. And you're like, so is he in a dream or is he in the real world? It has this real ambiguous ending. And you know what? I think about that film all the time because the ending isn't clear. Al and I went and saw The Green Knight, which has an ambiguous ending as well. And we still talk about it and think about it. I don't know about you, I'm still thinking about it. Like, sometimes when I'm just sitting here like waiting for something to happen, I'm like, I wonder how that movie really ends. You know, and I'm, I'm weighing different things and I'm looking at different aspects of it. Frederick Nietzsche said, people can endure any pain if they know the reason why. When we don't know the reason for our pain, however, we return to it again and again and again like the ending of Inception. And if you're like me, you have moments of suffering, you have moments of wondering why in your life and you keep going back to it and you're like, I have no satisfying answer, I have no satisfying ending, and I just keep bringing it up, I keep replaying it in my mind, I keep hoping for new insight, I keep thinking about the top and I'm like, did it wobble a little bit? Was it about to fall down? And I keep thinking about the ending of The Green Knight and I'm like, so was it real? Was it alive? Like, I keep replaying it over and over and again in my mind and we keep doing that with our pain and with our suffering. Now the Christian faith never promises that your pain will always make sense. The Christian faith doesn't promise that your pain will always feel like it was worth it. The Christian faith does promise that we have a God who knows what it is like to hurt. Now for some of you, if you're watching online, maybe here, that won't be enough. We'll say, that's not enough. I need answers. I understand that. But to promise you anything else would be a false promise that Jesus never made, and I would just be telling you what you wanted to hear. Let me introduce you to some words that you can throw around when you're hanging out at mainline parties. Um, every once in a while here at the Art Center, they'll have this big gathering with like people on the board and local people in the community who are wealthy or from universities and professors will come in and they're using all these big words, what really simple words would do. You know those kind of people. These are the type of, uh, yeah, my kind of people, right? That's what I do. Um, these are words you can throw around at the next mainline party you go to so you can seem really smart. And just for clarification, I spent weeks reading about these words to try to get a handle on them because I really struggled to figure them out. Transcendence and imminence. But we talked about God being transcendent two weeks ago when I kicked off this theory, series. Transcendence says the divine exists outside the material world. We can't kill God. We can't touch or see him. We can experience him in things like wonder, but we can't hold his hand. We can offer symbolic sacrifices to him, but he doesn't really eat. Imminence says God is here. We can touch him and hug him. We can hear him laugh. We can see him smile. We can eat with him. We can sing with him. He can say, let the little children come to me and get a hug. Now, I keep thinking about different ways to represent these two ideas to make it like simple and clear. And it's a comic book show at the Art Center, right? So I thought the best way to represent this is comic books. Um, does anybody ever buy a digital comic book? 
Okay, thanks. One other nerd. Thanks. <laughs> um, I have some digital comic books. Comicology is a great place to get your digital comics. You can have them on your phone, your iPad, your computer. And you know what? I can access them anywhere there's internet. Um, I can go anywhere there's internet and I can pull out my comics. And you know what? I'll never crease a page. I'll never get a coffee stain on it. I'll never accidentally tear a page. I'll never accidentally lose it. I have access to it everywhere. That's a lot like transcendence. Um, you can uh, root, uh, quote but let's compare that to eminence before I get ahead of myself. So if that's like transcendence, I also have this comic book in physical form. This is Dr. Strange's Way of the Weird. And so there's a digital form, but then there's a physical form. I can hold the physical form in my hands. I can like feel the pages. Now, I could misplace this. I could tear the pages. It could get damaged or lost. This form costs more, but I just like it better. Like, I like being able to hold on to it. But for our spiritual example, this is like transcendence. And this is like eminence. One you can hold and feel and touch. The other is kind of available anywhere. But you know what? He's also kind of, it's also kind of distant. If, if their servers ever shut down or I don't have Wi-Fi, I don't have access to that. Um, religions across the world take opposing positions on these two ideas. Like some religions will say God is fully transcendent. Others will say no, God is eminent. He's like, some religions will even say God is his creation. His creation is God. Extremes of these two ideas. Christianity, though, does something unique. It claims the transcendent God, Yahweh, makes himself eminent in order to be known. He's not his creation, but uses creation as a medium to introduce himself to creatures. According to Christian theology, the transcendent God who cannot be approached, who cannot be seen in essence or being, becomes eminent primarily in the God-man Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who is the incarnate second person of the Trinity. See, the unreachable God reaches for us in Jesus. As Jesus explains it in John 8, he isn't from around here. This is what he says in John 8, 23. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus is essentially saying, hey, you are eminent, I'm transcendent. You are eminent, I am not eminent, I am transcendent. And then the Apostle Paul describes Jesus like this in Philippians 2, 6-8. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant and became in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And finally, the writer of Hebrews brings it back to the topic at hand for this morning. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our suffering, but we have one who has been tested in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. In our time. So let's just summarize real quick. God is transcendent. He chose to set aside his transcendence so that he might become eminent to make his home in the flesh and blood with us. 
and he suffered and endured loss before dying and being resurrected and ultimately ascending to become a high priest for humanity in heaven. Now, growing up in church, we never talked about Jesus ascending. We always talked about one thing, Jesus dying. We were obsessed with Jesus dying, and then a couple times a year we would mention that he came back from the dead, but we're like, his life doesn't really matter. His ascension doesn't really matter. We're really into his death and his resurrection. Um, it's like a bonus fact that we don't know how it affects us, so we just ignore it. But the reality is, we have a God who became eminent, so that when we are hurting, we know we have a God who doesn't have a theory about pain, he has a memory about pain. When you suffer, Jesus isn't like, man, I wonder what suffering is like. Looks like it sucks. <laughs> Jesus is like, I suffered. I just got gave back, like, choked on that and puffing on that. Um, Jesus is like, I suffered. It's terrible. I still have a hole in my hand and the hole in my side. Like, suffering is not a theory or an idea to me, it's a memory. He has first-hand experience with hurting and not understanding how there could have been a better option rather than facing what we are. In Matthew 26, Jesus is pleading with his father in a garden moments before he's arrested and sentenced to die, moments before he'll do battle with the dark forces at work in this rebel world, moments before he'll be crowned king with thorns and coronated on a cross instead of a throne. And what does Jesus ask his father in that garden? Why does it have to be? No answer comes from heaven. He's wondering why. No answer comes from heaven. We wonder why. And we have a God who at that critical moment wondered why there wasn't some other path for him to take. Why didn't God intervene? Why didn't God pick something easy, easier? Jesus was left without answers, and we're often left without answers when we suffer. But we're not left without an advocate who's cried out the very thing that we're crying out in our pain. Jesus, when we suffer, says, I know what it is like to suffer. I know what it is like to wonder why and have no good answers come. I feel your pain and I won't ever leave you alone in it. See, Jesus never presented a view of life that ignored the hardships and troubles that we all face. Any religion that promises you a painless existence shouldn't be trusted. In the words of the great theological treatise, uh, The Prince of Bright, <laughs> It really is. There's so much good theological facts in there. Um, life is pain. Anyone who tries to tell you different is trying to sell you something. That's what the man in black says, Wesley. And he's absolutely right. There's a lot of religion that's trying to sell you something. And it'll tell you, there's a way where there's no pain, no suffering. It's all good. There's never any hard days. Jesus isn't trying to sell us something. But in the midst of life's pain, Jesus promises us himself. He promises his presence to overwhelm our most overwhelming moments. Now, we often think faith is believing enough to get something we want. That's how we kind of talk about it in churches a lot of times. Like, if I had enough faith, I could get what I want. Faith is quite simply trust. It's just trust. It's saying, I trust that person. We trust that when we don't have all the answers, we can still trust the one who does, even if he doesn't share them with us. We look forward to the day that he rules and reigns and sets all things right, but because of Jesus, we know all pain has a cosmic expiration date, but right now, here in the messy middle, between the kingdom of death and the invading kingdom of life, we hurt and we mourn and we suffer and we wonder, we wonder why. 
And sometimes we keep bringing that memory back up again and again and again, and we can't get past it, but we do not go through it alone. The God of the universe weeps with us, and our pain reverberates in his hands and feet. St. John of the Cross was a 16th century Christian mystic from Spain. He joined a religious order that wanted to reform the practices of the church, and he taught and trained young people who wanted to enter the ministry. He studied and taught the scriptures and fasted and prayed. But unfortunately, some saw this movement as a criticism of the Catholic Church, and they imprisoned him in a small room with little light, no change of clothes, and only water and scraps of bread and little pieces of salted fish to survive on. Each day, they dragged him out into the public square and whipped him. For eight months, he endured this torture until he finally managed to escape. During his imprisonment, historians believe he wrote his most famous work, a poem entitled The Dark Night of the Soul, which he later expanded into a book where he wrote about each stanza of the poem and about his spiritual journey. He argued that in the darkest moments of our lives, in the dark night of the soul, you can either hide from God or you can find in the midst of an unfathomable moment, you could encounter an unfathomable, unfathomable God. According to Pete Scazzaro, the author of Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, the dark night of the soul can be a gift. It can help us see things that we couldn't see in the light. Things about ourselves and things about God. The Psalms are full of people in the dark night of the soul asking, where were you, God? Why do I have to go through this? Why aren't you coming through? Why aren't you showing up? You say you're good, we'll get here and do something. These moments of wondering why aren't a shameful secret of the Christian faith? They come up in nearly every story of the Bible. Read any narrative, you'll have a character who's promised something, who believes that God is good, and then he's like, where are you? Why aren't you showing up? Why am I walking through this? Why is this so hard? Somehow, the dark night of the soul is an essential part of every one of our spiritual journeys. Now, if you're new to the Christian faith, maybe you haven't experienced it yet, but one day you will face something terrible, and you'll wonder where the hell was God when you needed him most. But when it comes, don't be startled at the moment. Don't be, don't be ready to give up. There is a faith that comes from seeing God do miracles, there is a deeper faith that comes from seeing God when he fails to do miracles. And sometimes finding that deeper faith looks like losing your faith at first. We have a God that weeps with us, that comforts us, because he's wept. He's cried out. He's wondered why, just like we have. Jesus is the transcendent God, become eminent, and in moments of pain, very Lord Jesus, thank you for coming, not just to rescue us from sin, but to live a human life, to become accessible, to become someone who just doesn't have a theory about pain, but someone who knows all too well what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. And God, every day that I suffer, I get more excited for your role in reigning in the kingdom of life, and rushes in, and you begin to unravel everything that's wrong. Until that day comes, God, comfort us in our weakness. Cry with us. Surround us with your arms. Let us know that we're not alone, but we have a God. God is distant. God.